it's not just because it's fun and all that kind of thing, but it's actually useful. Uh, going on vacation is actually really important. Well, it's important if you work. <laughs> if you don't work, then your life's a vacation. But other than that, <laughs> it's really good to be able to get away, rest, relax, recuperate, recharge, refocus, do a lot of re-things during vacation. Um, we are going to look at such a thing today in Numbers chapter 6, and this book of Numbers, we've presented the theme to be learning to trust God through the different trials that you have in your life. The book of Numbers are these collection of stories of the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and the 40-year wilderness journey of Israel is certainly much longer than it needed to have been. And yet, we saw that the, the, it was God himself that led Israel through the wilderness. In other words, the time of the wilderness in our lives is a time of trials, but it's a time of growth, and it's a very important time that we learn to trust God through the trials. Everybody has trials, everybody has challenges, everybody has difficulties. They come into various forms and times and, and severity, but whenever they come, we need to learn to trust God through them and not just check out. And so that's what the wilderness is all about, and that's what God wants us to learn. And so whenever these challenges come into your life, I think God wants us all to view them as God-ordained opportunities to trust the Lord. Rather than just complaining and talking and running and whatever your natural tendency might be, consider it an opportunity to trust the Lord, an opportunity to grow. Uh, it does say, it's interesting, because we do... We do face trials, and the trials in our lives can be very hard. They can be very challenging. I, I don't mean to diminish that in any way. Sometimes they're so hard, we feel as though we can't bear them. The Lord won't actually allow anything in your life that's so strong that you can't bear. If you're going through something more than you think you can bear right now, then you can take heart in the fact that God has judged you able to bear it. Otherwise, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be facing it. But trials can. They, they endanger the possibility that we can derail our faith in God. And so from time to time, we just need to take a break, like a vacation. We need to take a short break from some things, and we'll see what those are today, so that we can kind of recalibrate, and we can kind of get our walk back on track with the Lord. I want to remind you of Psalm 127. starts out saying this, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Amen? Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh, but in vain. It goes on and it says, It is vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late and to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. And sleep every night is a time of rest and recuperation so you can get up the next day ready to work. But if you're so consumed with your work of building whatever the house is that is being referred to here, okay, whatever the work is that you're getting up early and you're staying up late and you're full of sorrows and it's just work, work, work all the time, well, God says just take a break and, and sleep. You need some rest. Now, the Bible refers to a lot of different forms of these rests. The word in the Old Testament frequently used is a Sabbath. And the most common one is a weekly Sabbath, where every day for that Old Testament Jew, the day of Saturday, was a Sabbath of rest. That's literally what it means. And it was required. 
Well, it may not be required of us today in the New Testament, but it's still an awful good idea, right? It's still a really good idea to take a respite from normal activities to, well, refocus our hearts on the Lord. And if you can do that every week, then you really don't get very far down the road without getting in trouble. You, you make sure you get that taken care of on the, your day off to be able to recalibrate with the Lord. So the issue that we're going to see today in Numbers chapter 6 is the issue of biblical separation. Biblical separation. And we're going to look at a thing that's called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow. Some of you remember what that's about and some of you it's going to be new. So just follow along with me and I'm going to read the first eight verses of Numbers chapter 6. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves, to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in which he separateth himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother, for his sister when they die because the consecration of his God is upon his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. Now the chapter continues with more rules of how to do that and when you come out of the separation and we're not going to be looking at those things today but the thing I really want you to see just as we enter into this subject and this is in your notes is that biblical separation is not only from the things of the world but it's unto the things of the Lord. Anytime you have biblical separation referred to there's some things in this list that the Nazarite, the person who's taking on this vow, has to separate themselves from. But in each case, it says that they are to separate themselves unto, unto the Lord. We see the same principle in the New Testament. For example, in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, it says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. But in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 1, Paul starts that letter by saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. So we're to separate ourselves from things that will get in our way of serving the Lord and walking with Him. And we're to separate ourselves unto the Lord Himself and unto His work, for example, the gospel ministry. This principle is the exact same idea that you see when you study the biblical issue of repentance repentance though is just the volitional act repentance is you making the decision you change your mind repentance literally means you change your mind i have decided i'm no longer going to go in the direction i was going rather i'm going to turn and i'm going to go in the direction that god's going that's biblical repentance separation is the playing out of biblical repentance once you decide, I'm not going to go that way anymore, well, then you physically separate yourselves from those things in the direction you were going the wrong way. And once you decide you're going to go unto the Lord, you literally separate yourself unto the things of the Lord. It's not unlike the, the biblical issue of fasting. Fasting is the idea that you're going to separate yourselves from some things, typically it would be food, for a period of time, so that you can consecrate your heart and your mind 
to the Lord in a particular way for a particular set amount of time. In each case, it's from something unto something, from something unto something. And it says in verse 2 that we just read that either a man or a woman can make this vow. And they come in three specific areas to separate ourselves unto the Lord. So before we get into those three areas, let's just take a minute and let's ask the Lord to help us make the proper application for our lives as New Testament Christians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we understand that it is an Old Testament um, situation, and, and Israel in the wilderness had these requirements on them, and this time, and this option for them to separate themselves in a special way for a period of time, so that they could focus on you. But Lord, we also are called to the same things. We also are to separate ourselves from some things, and we also are called to be separate unto you and to your work. So I pray, God, that as we study these verses of Scripture today, that you'll help us to see the practical application of this principle for our lives. I pray that you will show us exactly how you want each of us to apply them, because each of us are at different places in our lives, and whatever that word is for each of us, for me today, Lord, I pray that you would make it clear. I want to serve you. I want to do what's right. Just speak. We love you, and we commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, in order to be able to separate ourselves unto the Lord, right, we need to start by taking a break, which is the title of this message today. Take a break from some things. And the first thing we're going to take a break from is from appetites. Appetites is what we're going to call it. Verses 3 and 4 talks about separating from wine and strong drink. Wine and strong drink. Now, Probably no surprise to anybody, there's a lot of people who have an appetite for that. Uh, but you need to understand that in this passage of Scripture, and really the principle all through the Scripture, is this is much more than just separating yourself from alcoholic beverages. In fact, that would be a very easy sermon to preach. Uh, that's a very easy subject to deal with. But this actually goes much deeper than just simply separating yourself from alcoholic beverages. In fact, so much so that in this very passage, it says that not only is he to separate himself from wine and strong drink, he's to separate himself from eating grapes or raisins, for that matter, dried grapes. And so they're not to have anything to do with anything that comes from this tree, which is called the vine tree. So anything that produces grapes or any product that comes from anything that produces grapes, in the case of the Nazarite vow, they're to have nothing to do with it. Okay, so this goes deeper than just, you know, drinking liquor. <laughs> so let's take, take some time and do a Bible study on wine, because wine is a subject that is throughout the Scriptures, right? And it has various uses and various references. And so some of them are negative and some of them are positive. And let's just look at some of the references. They should come up on the screen. And so let's start with the first one. This is actually the first negative reference comes from Genesis, and it's the first mention of wine in all of your Bible. And the very first mention that time wine ever shows up, what you have is Noah, after the flood, drinks of the wine. Oh, and he's drunken. He's drunken and uncovered in his tent. Let's look at some others. Genesis 19, 32 and 33. This is the story of Lot and Sodom, and, and, and God destroys Sodom, and Lot gets out, and only his daughters make it out with him. His wife turned back, turns to a pillar of salt, and and after that happens, the, the girls have a very 
poor view of what God's going to do, and they decide, hey, I got an idea. Let's make our father drink wine, and then let's lay with him. Okay, so these are some very negative consequences of wine through the Scriptures. There's a lot of warnings, right? Leviticus chapter 10 and verse number 9 deals with the issue of the Levites specifically. If you were with us last week, we saw how we are kind of the New Testament equivalent of the Levites, if you want to make that comparison from the Old Testament. And whenever the Levites are to go into the tabernacle of the congregation, there's one thing they're not to have anything to do with. That's wine and strong drink. That's wine and strong drink. You can go into the Proverbs. In the Proverbs, verse tw chapter 20, for example, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. It's deceptive. And if you're deceived by it, you're not wise. You're not wise. Proverbs 23 and verse number 30 is the next one. If you tarry long at the wine... Well, that's going to cause problems. If you took the time to read the verses before that, there's all kind of, you know, red eyes and woes and sorrows and stumbling and falling down and all these things are going on. Why? If you spend too much time in front of the cup, well, that's a real problem, right? You can go to Proverbs chapter 31 and verse number 4 and it says, hey, it's not for kings. It's not for princes. You guys don't need to mess with that stuff. You guys need to be clear-minded. You need to be clear-headed. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 28 and verse number 7, you're going to see, for example, that, man, there's some consequences that come with it. People have erred as a result of wine and strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. And you know that's true. You know that that's true in, in life and people that spend too much time and, and they, they're, they're allowing a controlled substance to control them. And they're no longer in control of their own lives. And so all of these references and many, many more, okay, I just gave you seven of them today, show the evil nature of wine and strong drink, okay? But not all the references are evil, and you need to understand that. Some of them are actually good, and so there's some positive references, and we'll start with Psalms chapter 4. Psalms chapter 4 and verse number 7 will tell us, it's associated with gladness more than the time. So gladness from the Lord is compared to a great harvest, a time when so much harvest has come in that you can make and bottle your wine, and it's, it's, it's associating with merriment and mirth and pleasures. We see that again in Psalms chapter 104. And the next reference, again, it's, it's making glad the heart. And so you've got some positive things going on with that in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And verse number 19, we have the next one. It makes merry. We'll go back to the last one. Ecclesiastes 10, 19. Feast made for laughter. Wine makes merry. Okay, that's, that's a good thing. Song of Solomon starts out. Let's go ahead and that one. Kiss me, talking about, this is the relationship between a man and a woman that pictures Christ in the church. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Well, that goes without saying, but the, the assumption is wine is good, the love of Jesus Christ is better. The love of Jesus Christ is better, right? And then in Judges chapter 13, chapter 9, excuse me, in verse 13, uh, the vine said, Should I leave my wine which cheereth God and man and go to be promoted over the trees? We'll take a glance at this a little bit later on today. Okay, but the idea is that there's some references in the Scripture where wine is not negative. It's actually positive. And so they're associated, like I said, with some pleasures. In fact, God tells the Israelites that when you finally make it into the promised land, when you finally make it into Canaan, man, you're going to be able to enjoy wine. Okay, so, so that's in there too. So we're doing a Bible study, right? So I want you just to see this. As a result, clearly wine is not forbidden. 
but it is cautioned. Because the number of references of warning that are negative far outnumber the number of references that are positive. So, it's cautioned, although not forbidden. Now, I get it. The hardcore legalists of the body of Christ don't appreciate what I just said. But then again, I don't know when the hardcore legalists of the body of Christ have ever actually been good Bible teachers. Uh, You need to just be able to read what God says and take it as he says it and believe it as he says it, even if it goes against your personal preference. I get it. Uh, If you're all about abstaining, I'm with you, man. Go for it. That's awesome. Uh, But don't pretend like the Bible says something it doesn't say. It's not forbidden, but it is cautioned. Why? Because it's dangerous. It's a slippery slope. it's, it's, It's a very important subject, right? And so obviously, like in anything, the proper answer, right, it comes in having the right balance in your life. Romans chapter 14, and and by the way, today is not the day that we're just doing a whole thing on drinking. This is not the issue. We're digging into the Nazarite vow. We're building a foundation here. Romans 14, 21. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. If any of you know anybody who is a brother who has come out of a history of experience in their life at any level, where the consequences of wine or strong drink has been negative on their life, it's better for you to forsake your liberty in having the freedom to drink it so that you can protect your brother. That's better for you. It's better if you don't even touch the stuff if you think anybody is going to be offended by it. See, that's the idea. That's what God teaches. That's what's clear. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, most everybody's familiar with this. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, it doesn't say that you're forbidden to touch it or sip it or drink it. It says that you shouldn't have it in excess, right? There's a balance. Uh, Even the qualifications for a bishop in a church is to not be given to wine. Given to does not mean drink, but it says don't be given over to it. There's an issue of excess, right? It's not forbidden. But let me just tell you, it's also not a good idea. It's just not a good idea. You have to be careful. And while the hardcore legalists wouldn't like the idea that I say it's not forbidden, uh, the the liberals out there don't actually like that I say you shouldn't do it. (laughs) So we're probably right in the zone where we should be, right? I mean, if everybody's mad at you. (laughs) I mean, you need to be careful. Oh, okay, preacher, I will. I'll be careful. Listen, Anytime you meet somebody who says, I can take it or leave it, they'll take it every time. (laughs) You think about it. I can take it or leave it. Yeah, well, how about you try leaving it? They don't typically do that, do they? That's not what they do. Lest I digress. Isn't it interesting, though? This topic brings more debate than almost any other topic in the body of Christ. Maybe music styles, I don't know. Everybody loves their liberty, man. Everybody loves it. And we'll get to some issues before this day is over. You'd never thought the Nazarite vow was going to be so practical as it's going to be by the time we're done. Everybody loves their liberty, but you know what you need to love more than your liberty? You need to love the brethren. That's what you need to love more than your liberty. And that's what that's really all about. 
So this dilemma that we find ourselves in, this, this seeming paradox about wine, is it's actually pretty interesting. It's almost as if the very existence of wine represents the very knowledge of both good and evil. Huh. Seems like I've heard about that before, that knowledge of good and evil thing. You mean that you're saying that knowing both good and evil comes from wine. The subject of wine will bring you the proper understanding of the subject of wine will bring you to understand what's good and understand what's evil. Well, isn't that funny? Because in the Bible, there's only one forbidden tree. That's in Genesis chapter 2. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve were forbidden from eating from it. There's only one forbidden fruit in all of the Bible, and it's right here in Numbers chapter 6. It's the vine tree. It's the grape. It's the only time any fruit anywhere in the Bible is ever said to not be taken of. And it's in a particular context that we're studying today. Now that's interesting because wine or grape juice is a type of the blood. Of Jesus Christ. We see that in the Last Supper of Jesus Christ with the disciples in Matthew 26. We see through the scriptures that the, the eating of blood is forbidden. It's forbidden in Genesis chapter 9 before the law. It's forbidden in Leviticus 17 under the Old Testament law. And it's forbidden in Acts chapter 15 after the Old Testament law. This is not just an Old Testament issue. The vine, well, it's connected to nakedness and drunkenness as we saw in Noah it was true with Adam. It was true with Lot. And there's only two places in your Bible where four specific trees are mentioned together. And one of them is the Garden of Eden. So in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 9, you have the tree of life. And in Genesis 2.17, you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis 3, chapter 7, you have the fig tree because when Adam and Eve, they realized they were naked, what did they cover themselves with? Well, they covered themselves with fig leaves. So you know fig trees were there. And then in Genesis 3, 18, you have the thorns. The thorns are going to be the result of the curse. Man's going to work the ground, but thorns are going to come out. So that's the fourth tree. You have the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have the fig tree and you have the thorn tree. Now, I told you we'd get back to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9 is an interesting little story. It's a story that paints a picture for the nation of Israel, and we're not getting into the details of that picture, but from verses 8 to 15, it starts out by saying, the trees went forth at a time to anoint a king over them. And so the trees represent Israel, and the idea is Israel wants a king, and there, there's some different options for Israel in getting their king. But it's interesting that the Lord chose to use this little picture, right, this little metaphor, and talk about trees. Men are as trees anyway, aren't they? And so in this passage, as you come on down through from verses 8 to 14, you'll see the four trees. You have the olive tree, you have the fig tree, you have the vine tree, and you have the bramble or thorn tree. Now, if we're just going to compare those, we're going to find, right, that the fig and the thorn are similar to the two that we saw in Genesis chapter 3, and the two that are left are the olive 
and the vine. Well, the olive tree, that's going to represent the tree of life. And if you know anything about olives, and if you know anything about olive trees, you're going to find out that that's the right comparison. What was that tree of life back in the garden? It was an olive tree. An olive tree can last hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of years. Olive trees just continue to grow. And it's interesting because olive oil is the kind of oil that was used for the anointing oil, which is a picture and a type of the Holy Spirit of God. But that vine, that's the one that's left. That vine compares to that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? That serpent didn't get, give to Eve an apple, y'all. Read your Bibles. You might learn something. Listen, that was a vine. That was a grape. That's what that thing was. And God makes it very clear. Now, back to the book of Numbers and see if we can find our application. If you will take a break from wine. Not only will you be taking a break from its pleasures, potentially, you will absolutely guarantee that you never fall prey to the evils that it presents. One sure way to never suffer from alcoholism is never drink alcohol. <laughs> you can actually control that one. Wine represents any personal pleasure or appetite that can potentially go too far and mess up your walk with God. Which means, in a practical application, anything that we find pleasurable, anything we have an appetite for, that we let go too far, that's going to mess up our walk with the Lord. That could be any form of recreation, hobby, entertainment, anything whatsoever. Be not drunk with or controlled by your hobbies. Be not drunk with or controlled by your selfish activities. See, if you're facing trials in your life, if you're wandering in the wilderness and you feel yourself failing, why don't you consider taking a break from your appetites, from pleasurable things, which might just might be hindering your walk of holiness? Hebrews chapter 12 says it this way, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So there's a couple of things you can set beside. Set, set aside sins for sure. Get that out of your life. But some things are just weights. They're not necessarily sins. They're just weights. They weigh you down. And if you're going to run the marathon, the race with patience, well, you don't want to have a lot of extra weight on your back, right? What if you took a break from some of these things for a while just to reset your relationship with the Lord? think that'd be a good idea all right let's look at the next one take a break from appearances that's the second one this is the one that says there'll no razor come upon his head no haircuts <laughs> okay this is a little tougher bible study um, but we're going to get into it so you know that there was the story of samson one of the judges right and he's the guy with the long hair until his hair was cut and he lost you know delilah and the whole story 
okay, the idea was the strength was in his hair. Well, the truth of the matter is Samson was a Nazarite who took the vow for life. Most people just took it for a period of time, and that's what number six is all about. You enter into the Nazarite vow, and eventually the days are fulfilled, and you come out of the Nazarite vow. Okay, that's fine. Some people had it for life, like Samson. But when we look at this thing, it's interesting because I, I refer to this idea of the hair as your appearance, as your appearance. Uh, generally speaking, right, appearances are important. Y'all cleaned up real nice this morning. We're all very thankful. This is a great thing. Um, you need to present yourself well. Uh, if you're going to go in for a job interview, well, you need to be well-groomed. You need to look good. You need to present yourself well professionally, right? Socially, you need to present yourself well. You need to present yourself well if you want to have any relationships with other people, right? And personally, you just need to present yourself well personally, if for no other reason than to just have a good testimony, have a good testimony of a person who presents themselves. Well, you care enough about these things. That's interesting because in the Bible, we go back to the Levites. The Levites had some stricter rules on them than the regular folk. And we are all Levites now, by the way. There's no more regular folk. We're all in on this. According to Ezekiel chapter 44, and it's prophetic for the time of the temple to come, and verse number 20, it says that the Levites in the temple, they're not to shave their heads nor are they to let their hair grow too long. They're to keep it pulled. The idea is keep it trimmed. Just keep it cut. Okay, that's the idea. You come into the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is interesting, and verse 15, For men doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him. So generally speaking, Men shouldn't be presenting themselves with long hair, right? Generally speaking, they're saying it's a shame. Now, if you go to the very next verse, it is different for women, right? So for the very next verse in 1 Corinthians, verse 15, but if a woman have long hair, it's a glory to her, right? For her hair is given her for a covering. And the idea here is this. If we connect it back to Numbers chapter 6, a woman constantly having the long hair could be compared to somebody who is like a woman taking on the vow of a Nazarite for life. Because a woman, in the context would be a married family, right? She is separated unto her husband. And she is subject to her husband. Go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11 and you'll see that, right? So as a result, the long hair is a demonstration and a picture of the fact that she is separated unto her man right? And that's what that's really all about. Now, it represents her covering. Now, if we go back to the book of Numbers chapter 6, and we look at verse number 7, it says that the consecration of God is upon his head. The consecration of God is upon his head. So with the Nazarite vow, the long hair then becomes the visible witness of inward consecration. In that case, the man's long hair associates him as being covered by or subject to, well, in our case, our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, as his bride. Okay, now, it is also true that we can get overly consumed with how we appear to others. 
without regard for how we actually are. We're all about making sure we look good when we leave the house. But I'm not just talking about the clothes you wear and, and the haircut that you get. It's interesting. We overly worry and consume ourselves with what will others think of me more so than how am I truly before the Lord? And the Nazarite is called to let it go, grow the hair, look like a nut. Focus on me for a minute. Let's get your life where it needs to be. And then we'll come out of this. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say it's more godly to be sloppy. <laughs> the people of Walmart are not generally demonstrating their consecration to God. Thank you very much. <laughs> but practically speaking, I believe this is the lesson we can take from this. Pretense is detrimental to your walk with God. Pretense, being pretentious, pretending, pretending to be somebody you're not, pretending to put on airs like you're someone you are not, and acting as though you look like something that in truth and reality is very, very different. And this is such a risk for the Christian in the body of Christ. As long as I answer the questions right, as long as I show up enough here and there, as long as I say the right things around the right circles of people. But the truth be told, your life in private is very different. It's very, you have a secret life that others don't even know about. If that's the case, you're living your life hiding. You're wearing masks. You ought to consider taking a break from that. In fact, can I recommend, if that's your particular problem, why don't you take that vow and take a break from that for the rest of your life? Why don't you consider never going back on that one? I mean, why would you want to live your life as a lie? Not just to others, because after a while, you start believing it. You're lying to yourself. Why don't you just be you? Be authentic. You can be kind, but just be who God made you. God made you, you. So be the best version of you that you can be, which is, by the way, Jesus Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's what that is. So do that. Quit hiding behind a look that needs to look a certain way. And just focus on who you are. Your visible witness today, it's not, it's not long hair. The thing that people will notice about you is you're not living a lie anymore. Just get real. People notice that. And this is something you should never go back from. Listen, let your guard down. Trust God to be able to take the real you to the next step. To the next step. Quit worrying about how you look for just a minute. And you might realize that's the way you want to look all the time. You want to look real. That's how you want to look. All right, let's go to the last point. Number three, take a break from adulteration. I had to come up with a word with a name. What does adulteration mean? Well, 
from the dictionary, it means to debase or make impure by adding inferior materials or elements, cheapened in quality or purity. Some synonyms might be contamination, defilement. That's what we'll see in the Bible. So back in Numbers chapter 6, they were to separate themselves to, from any dead bodies. Come at no dead body, is what it says. Why is that? Because God considers dead bodies to be unclean. This is very clear throughout the Old Testament, certainly. Coming in contact, physical contact, with a dead body will make you unclean in an Old Testament economy. It will literally defile you. That's what the Bible says. So let me give you some references. Numbers chapter 19 and verse number 11. He that toucheth the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. Numbers chapter 9 and verse 6. And there were certain men who were defiled by the dead body of a man that they could not keep the Passover on that day. They came before Moses and before Aaron on that day. Leviticus 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say unto them, There shall, be, there shall none be defiled for the dead among his people. But for his kin that is near unto him, that is for his mother, his father, his son, for his daughter, for his brother. It goes on and it continues to talk about if there's a death in the family and you have to help prepare for the death and you come in contact, okay, there's, a, there's an exception in Leviticus 21. In, in, in number 6, while you have this vow on you, there's no exception. If there's a death in the family, you're, you still, you're still not supposed to touch them in this application, okay? Now, this idea of the things that are unclean, the things that defile you in the Old Testament, man, the, the list goes on and on and on. Specifically, most frequently, the entire book of Leviticus, just chapter after chapter of all the things that are unclean. Maybe why it's not maybe your favorite book to read through when you're just you know, wanting to be encouraged. <laughs> but to save you all some time, I decided to just categorize the things that are unclean. Okay, I'm just going to whip this out for you quick. If you're interested, you can jot it down. If not, you can just listen. Categories of things that are called unclean in the Old Testament. Dead bodies, whether they be of men or of beasts. Uh, certain meats, right? So the unclean foods that you're not supposed to eat. Uh, leprosy, the disease of leprosy. Great picture of sin, by the way. Uh, makes you unclean. Uh, then there's another general category I'm just going to call exposed bodily fluids uh, of various sorts and forms and for various reasons we'll just leave it at that um, if what's on the inside finds its way to the outside well that's something you shouldn't it'll make you unclean in the old testament okay uh, adultery certainly uncovering the nakedness of somebody certainly and and these are physical acts okay but here's the real deal and this is in your notes we need to avoid anything that defiles our soul this is where we're really heading with this thing. Leviticus 7, 21. Moreover, the soul that shall touch any unclean thing. Wait a minute. My soul touches something? I thought my body touches something. No, the soul that touch any unclean thing as the uncleanness of man or any unclean beast or any abominable unclean thing and eat the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings which pertain to the Lord, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. Now, because touching the dead defiles your soul, Jesus Christ says to his potential disciples in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 21-22, 
And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. You ever wonder what that was all about? But Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. You have it referred to again in Luke chapter 9 and verse 60. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Because you can't be physically unclean by touching the bodies of the dead and involved in ministry. Okay, so now we're still connecting the physical touching of things, right? Which today for us in the New Testament body of Christ is no longer true. We no longer have those restrictions on us because in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you got to get this, your soul was literally stuck to your body. Old Testament salvation is not the same as New Testament salvation. No man in the Old Testament is called the Son of God except Adam before the sin came in. You're not born again a child of God by looking forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's made up somewhere in a Bible college. That's not in the Bible. So salvation in the Old Testament is different. The status of the believer and how they interact with God was different. And literally the soul of a man was stuck to his body so that if he physically touched something, it directly affected his soul. But that's not the case in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the word body, the word that's translated body, is also translated, in fact, much more frequently translated, as soul or life or person. So if your body touched something, it also defiled your soul. But that's not the case in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word that's translated body is only translated body. It's never translated soul, and it's never translated life. And in the New Testament, the word that's translated soul is only translated soul or life, and it's never translated body. Why is that? Well, because in the New, for the New Testament Christian, God has separated our soul from our body through Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 11. In whom also ye are circumcised, this is what this means, with the circumcision made without hands, in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. At that instant when you trust Christ as your Lord and your Savior, there is a spiritual operation that takes place inside your body as the Holy Spirit of God is going to come and live and dwell inside your body. God is light and Him is no darkness at all. He can have no contact whatsoever with the evil nature of your old man in the flesh. So He does this spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, and causing a buffer, a gap, so your soul in the New Testament, Christian, is no longer directly stuck to your body, so the physical touching of things no longer defiles your soul. Hallelujah. You think we're out of the woods. Okay, well, while the physical elements of this evil world around us are bad, we are secure in Christ. We're undefiled, praise the Lord, but yet we still need to separate ourselves from uncleanness. And this is what we saw in 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Let's go back there. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Notice, and touch not the unclean thing. What's that all about? Hang on a second. And I will receive you, and will be a father under you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness 
of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And Christians come and at Q&A sessions and they ask the question, what in the world would be the filthiness of the spirit? And the answer is, as a New Testament Christian, there's no possible way for you to be defiled in your spirit ever, 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 ever. Well, then what's he talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 1? What he's talking about is don't make yourself intermingle with, separate yourself from lost people. That's what he's talking about because lost people are defiled in their flesh and in their spirit. Go back a few verses before verse 17 of chapter 6. The verses many of you are familiar with starting in verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. There you have it. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. So the idea is touch not the unclean thing. Those of you who are Bible students will remember 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which talks about relationships of divorce, marriage, and remarriage, and those things we studied. It starts off by saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But the idea is not this. Woo-hoo. Although for some of you that might be a good place to start. <laughs> the idea of touch is to have relations with. Right? That's the idea. And so here, let's just plug it in. Be ye separate and don't have relationships with unclean people. What communion has Christ with the devil? What are you doing that for? Right? And we make that application to marriage because there is no greater union than marriage. There's a lot of unions it could apply to. Okay, let's go on. For the New Testament Christian, here's what you need to understand. If the outside isn't an issue, well, we're defiled from within. We're not defiled from without the things that we touch, the things that we taste, the things that we eat. And Jesus made that clear in Mark chapter 7 and verse 15. There's nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. He goes on and clarifies in verse 20, and he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, Proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. So go ahead, eat bacon, wrap it around a shrimp. I mean, have a time of it. Work at a funeral home. It's okay. Watch out for this stuff. See? From within, out of the heart of man. So Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Out of the abundance of the heart. Now, now, we get a little glimpse into what's in your heart, don't we? Just got to listen to what you say. Oh, you can't know my heart. You get a... God sort of told us 
You can't help but talk about the stuff that's in your heart. The system's fixed. So in James 3, in verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on the fire of hell. In Colossians 3 and verse 8, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The Nazarite is to separate from uncleanness. He's to separate from defilement. So let me ask you something. What do you take in that eventually comes out? You see, that's the application for you. What do you take in that defiles your soul that eventually will come out your mouth? Do you read? Do you watch TV? How about amusement? Uh, I love that word, amusement. The prefix a, ah, it means without. Muse means to think. Amusement, no thinking. That's dangerous. I saw a CBS News report. It reported that kids and teenagers average over seven hours a day looking at screens. Touch not the unclean thing. Have no relations with things that are on. Okay, so if you sleep eight hours a day, and if you go to work or school for, you know, eight hours-ish a day, it only leaves eight. Seven of them, you got a screen in front of you? Okay, I get it. The kids have screens. Okay, I get it. It's school. Let me ask you something. What do you think they're seeing there? Godly edification and purity? I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but you've got to look for it. Well, not from Hollywood, they're not. Not from reality TV, they're not. Not from social media, they're not. Not as long as these verses are still in the Bible. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Worst advice anybody ever gave you was trust your heart. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. In case you didn't get the none part, let me reiterate. No, not one. None of them. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Let me reiterate. Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongue they have used to seat. The poison of asps under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the majority of stuff that pops up on those screens. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. That's what they do. The screen is sending messages to your soul, to your mind, to your will, to your emotions. Through the eye gate, through the ear gate and poisons your ability to be pure and focused on serving the Lord. Vulgarity and pornography and selfishness and immorality and all these things are all glorified and they enter your soul 
Have you ever tried a fast from social media or entertainment for a while just to give God enough time to speak into your heart? Why do you think we do youth camps? And it's harder now with all the kids got their devices with them. But I mean, why do you think we would do that? Just get away from the everyday thing. Give yourself a few days just to let God speak. You just might be surprised what might happen. You just might be surprised. We live in the last days. It's the time of Laodicea. It's called the hour of temptation. In mass, people are falling away from faithfulness to the Lord. These are our trials. This is the wilderness we have to walk through. It's time to take a break from some things. Take a break from some appetites, some pleasures, some unnecessary weights that hinder our progress, from appearances, from false pretenses, pretending and showing ourselves to be somebody that we're not actually, and from adulteration, the defilement of our souls, evil communications entering in. Look, I get it, the Nazarite vow. That's an Old Testament practice, but it sure does give us some good advice on how we can stay connected to God, doesn't it? Especially when we're in the midst of trials. And wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great if we could take a break from all those things henceforth and forever and just live our lives in full and total consecration to our Lord every day not just on Sunday, not just for a season, every day. I think that's what God wants. I think God wants us to be the New Testament cash equivalent of a Nazarite for life and never let those things hinder your walk with him, your ministry for him, and your effectiveness in the lives of others. There's some things we can learn from the stories in the book of Numbers. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we're confronted with these issues today, Lord, I am very